There is yet another part to our service of worship to our great God this morning, and that is His Word, to hear what He would have to say to us from it. It is His inspired, God-breathed Word, and we'll be studying, hearing from Him in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, as you make your way back to your seat and turn there, Galatians 5, verse 13 says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Father, we praise you for this morning and this time, for this place, for these people. God, thank you most of all for Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would become more like Him as You work in us through Your Word, through our prayers, through our service to You. God, would our worship to You be acceptable, and God, would we leave from here changed and ready to continue Your work in us. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. Bobby Ferguson lived in the Iowa State Penitentiary and other state institutions for nearly 40 years when he was 40 years old. His mother gave birth to him as a prisoner in 1934, and she legally renounced him just after birth, so he became a ward of the state. He lived at an orphanage, the state orphanage, until he was transferred around to other places, including a state hospital for the mentally challenged. Even though he tested average intelligence, they just didn't know what to do with him. And he started out life in a prison of sorts and then started going to prison because he didn't know life outside of prison. He didn't know how to live outside of an institution that would bring him three meals a day, that had a place for him, that had structure. And so he would commit a crime and in many cases just give himself up. And then he would attempt an escape because, not because he was trying to get away, but because he knew they would tack on extra time so that he could stay in prison longer. And he got so used to prison life and institutional life, he never learned how to work, how to pay bills, how to save, how to budget, how to give to others, or anything that we take for granted. He, he grew tired of committing crimes and being sent back to prison and being set free. And he didn't want to hurt anybody to stay in prison. He didn't want to go there. So as he was facing parole one time, he petitioned the Iowa State governor for a life sentence. Just send me to prison for life. Well, the governor declined. That's really not what the prison system is for. So he was paroled, and to help him out, they said, well, why don't you work here at the prison as a janitor? But he still couldn't handle it, so he skipped town, an intentional parole violation. He called the police and said, hey, guys, I've skipped town. You need to come get me. They said, good luck, and hung up. (laughs) And that's why the newspapers started to cover his story. That's how we have his story this morning, that he had petitioned the governor for that, and he had been declined, and then he had called up the police, and they said, you're on your own. So he went and some, uh, robbed some money so that he could be sent back to prison. As he neared his release date, the newspapers covered that he had become engaged to be married when he was released. And so things were looking up for him. I don't know what happened to him after that. I mean, he was released and uh, he was engaged to be married. I I looked up, I tried to find, I guess the, the newspapers were done with the story after that. But the reporter asked the counselor at the correctional facility, do you think he's gonna make it this time? And he just looked at him and said, what do you think? 
Now, that's a sad story about a man who did not know how to live in freedom. He couldn't handle life outside of prison. And it's a picture of what we can be like, how our thinking can be Christians when we're released from the law, the prison, the slavery of the law. We've been talking about that throughout this letter. We're born into prison. We're born into slavery. And we default to that mentality because we don't know anything else besides prison. And the prison that we're in is the prison of sin under the law. Why is that? Well, because when we're born before God, we're born sinful. We sin, and and we inherit Adam's sin. And, And we bring our own sin along with us so that physically we don't really know anything except that I have some needs. And so to get those needs met, I cry, right? And we start to grow and we start to develop other needs and wants, and we figure out if I cry a little louder (laughs) or if I scream or if I throw a temper tantrum, I'll get what I need or what I want. And we get better and better at getting what we want and what we need. But then come the rules for our life. No kicking the ball in the house. No throwing food. Don't stick things in the electrical sockets. (laughs) That, that is a good rule, by the way. We should have that as a rule. Uh, get, you know, when I call your name, come here. Go to bed when I tell you. Life becomes really difficult because all of a sudden there's a bunch of rules that are given to us by all the people that are bigger than we are, right? And so we obey so we don't get in trouble, but we don't really like it unless somebody starts to give us rewards for obeying. So now we get negative reinforcement when we break a rule. We get positive reinforcement when we obey, and we're being trained to live in this world. And that's not bad because to live in this world, there are rules we have to obey. Don't steal. Go to work to get money so you can buy what you need and you want. Pay your taxes. You know, we need laws and we need enforcement of those laws for a decent, ordered society. So it's good for a child to begin with some simple rules. And as the child grows, the rules change, right? You wouldn't let a two-year-old outside the house for any length of time with no supervision, but you could let your 12-year-old outside of the house for some unsupervised time with some friends. And there would be any number of rules that you wouldn't have to tell your 12-year-old when he went out of the house, right? You don't have to repeat anything and everything or try to think of anything that could possibly do and say, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, do this, do this, do that. You don't have to do all of that. They're being trained to obey laws even when they're not spoken. So by the time a child is 16 or 17, she should be able to spend sizable amounts of time with very few rules given out. There's a certain amount of responsibility and freedom that comes with responsibility. And as a child does what he's supposed to do, he gets more privileges, more freedom, right? So when they do what they're supposed to at eight years old, you trust him a little bit more when he turns 10 or when she turns 12 years old and they earn limited freedom with all that responsibility. That's how we're trained to live in this world. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's all very good and necessary because we understand that we thrive in that as children and as adults, and so does our culture. A child thrives when there are reasonable boundaries, and he's able to figure out life within those rules. Of course, a young child only understands the simple rules, don't go there, don't touch that, but as they age, it helps them along to become part of society with other people that have more advanced rules and laws. That is all fine and good. But what happens when we become confronted with the law of God? We see the Ten Commandments. We see all of the commands from God and the Scriptures. We think, because we're trained this way, that's how I can get rewarded. 
That's how I can get some freedom and some privileges by obeying that law. That's how I can become acceptable to God. But God's law was not given to us for that. It wasn't given to us as a barely low standard of of just being a, a good person. It's a perfect standard of holiness. And so as we try to obey the law, we find we we just can't keep it as it's written and as it's intended. It goes so much deeper and broader than we ever thought, and it is literally impossible. And I say that with the original meaning of that word, literally, because that word is used a lot today improperly, but it is literally impossible to obey God's law. Our only solution humanly, humanly speaking, our only solution is to replace God's law with something better that we can keep something that we think we uh, like a little bit and can keep, and so we lower God's standard or we find just a, a different one and try to use that. Either way, we've replaced a standard, and when we do that, we lower God, we elevate ourselves, and, and we think this is gonna, we're going to be okay because of this. But God cannot and will not lower His standard. His law never changes, and we all will be judged one day by His perfect holiness as seen in the law, and every one of us will fall short, and we will all suffer God's wrath for our sin unless the only other option is presented to us and we believe in Jesus Christ. We give up trying to obey the law. We cry out to God for His mercy to forgive us of our sins because we can't follow His law. And the good news is that because of Jesus, He does. He forgives us. Now, many of us are familiar with the gospel to that point. We've heard that. We agree with that. We praise God for that. What happens when we are redeemed by Jesus is that we are then set free from prison, the prison of the law and sin and slavery. But like Mr. Ferguson, we're so used to being in prison, being under the law, we need to be trained how to live in this freedom that Christ has given us. Because we don't know how to live in freedom, we're either going to default to trying to go back to prison or try to live like we are, because once Christ sets us free, we are never bound again, but we can try to live that way. Or we're going to misunderstand freedom and think, well, that just means I can do whatever I want. And that's licentiousness, that's antinomianism, no law. And that seems even scarier to us than legalism. When I joined the Air Force, I went to basic training in San Antonio, Texas. In basic training, all your freedoms are removed. You're told what to do, when to do it, how to do it. You're told what to eat, when to eat. They teach you how to walk and run, (laughs) how to talk, what to think. They make you into what they want you to be. You didn't come in being what they wanted you to be, so they make you into what they want. So as you graduate basic training, you head off to the place where they educate you in the job that you're going to do for the Air Force. They call it tech school. The length of time can vary based on your job. The shortest is about 36 days. Uh, Linguistics, I think, is the longest at about a year and a half. Mine was six and a half months long. So you go from basic training into tech school where you had no freedoms at all into tech school where you can't get all of your freedoms back all at once. They've set up a phased system of restoring your freedoms a little bit at a time because they'd figured out that when they did that, when they had taken away all of your freedoms and they put you into tech school and gave you all your freedoms back, you went crazy. You didn't know how to handle it. 
So if you stayed out of trouble in phase one, very limited freedom, you'd progress to phase two and get a few more freedoms. After several weeks or months, you'd get a little bit more privileges, a little bit more freedom restored, but never all the way, you're still in the military, despite what the army might say, right? (laughs) But the same thing happens in our minds as Christians. When Jesus sets us free from the law, we might think, well, that means I can do whatever I want. We need the training for how to operate in the new life that God has given us in Jesus in freedom. He's made us different from what we were. We're not the same we think, we're not the same way we used to be or the same person. So we need to learn how to think and how to talk and walk and run because we're never going to go back to the prison of sin under the law. We might try. We might try to live that way. We might petition God for a life sentence under the law because we understand it. It's so much easier. But we're also not released into total freedom to do whatever we want. It, that's a misunderstanding of freedom. Some of us, as we said last week, have been very politely listening to these series of messages throughout Galatians about works righteousness and following rules and following laws, and that's not the right way. And we've been listening, but we love our legalism. We love our rules that we follow. We don't want to let those go. They make us feel safe. They make us feel good about ourselves. They make us look really good to the people around us. We've been learning from God's Word how damaging they are to us and to those around us. They even keep us from Christ. But despite that, too many of us don't want to let them go. Why is that? Well, because, again, that's what we're trained to. That's how we're trained. That's how we live our lives in this world. We don't know what to do with freedom. We're afraid that freedom will just mean sin, 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 and sin some more. It'll mean antinomianism, lawlessness, licentiousness. You know, it's going to look like all those people out there that call themselves Christians but do whatever they want, anything that's against the law of God, against His Word, when we know that we've been called to holiness. So we don't want this idea of freedom. We're not quite sure what to make of it. So we see the commands in the New Testament. And we say, okay, those are the rules then. Those are the laws that I've got to follow. So I'll follow them and check those boxes, at least in my mind. I'll I'll convince myself. And I'll even come up with a few others. I'll, I'll come up with some extra rules and extra laws. And we set up our own little prison cell and we close the door in pride, thinking, look how good I'm doing. Look how much I'm growing in my maturity as a Christian. And what we've actually become is Pharisees. We think it's either legalism or licentiousness. Both are bad, but at least legalism has some morality built into it. But both of those are wrong. We need the training from the Word of God for how to live in this freedom that Jesus releases us into. And the training we see constantly throughout the New Testament, either spelled out as it is in Ephesians and Colossians, or just modeled for us is to put off the old and to put on the new. Take off the old, the bad, the, the wrong, put on the new, the good, the right. So if legalism and licentiousness are both wrong, what do we put on if we put those off? So that we can drop our hesitation of of embracing this freedom that we have in Christ. What do we need to put on? Well, we need to learn here to guide our freedom and guard against fighting. What is it that does that? Well, there are two pieces here in verses 13 and 14 is the first one, and it is that love guides our freedom. Love guides our freedom in verses 13 and 14. Just as we're told in verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free, 
Verse 13 says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. We're made free in Christ by Christ. So don't try to go back to prison. Don't resort to rules and laws. But won't that just lead to everybody doing what's right in their own eyes? Continue in verse 13. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So no, the answer isn't licentiousness, antinomianism. Just do whatever I want. See, the temptation in legalism is to prop ourselves up by our own efforts to please God. The temptation in licentiousness is to do whatever we want as if our flesh were God. What my flesh wants, all of its desires and lusts, following my heart, following my dreams, doing whatever I think sounds good and feels good, I'll just do whatever and obey the driving force of my flesh, that's never what a Christian is called to. We're never called to worship our own obedience and legalism, and we're never called to worship our desires from our flesh as idols that we create. In either case, we don't even realize that's what we're doing. <laughs> you know, we would never say that to people like, oh, this is, this is how I'm living lately. I'm, I'm worshiping my desires for this or that. But that's what it is. That's, and the reason is because, as we've talked about, we are made to be, we exist as worshipers. We're always going to be worshiping something. So when Christ sets us free, it doesn't mean that we're free to do whatever we want. We're still worshipers. We're not free, in other words, to be God. He doesn't give us freedom to be God. He, he gives us freedom to worship God rightly and properly. Well, what does that look like? Well, that's what the entire New Testament is about. And that's why we study this Word of God. We're now free to worship Him, to know Him, to obey Him because of love. Rather than the cruel slave master, prison guard of the law, God is love. God isn't loving, God is love. 1 John 4 says it two times for us so that we don't miss it. So to worship God means to love Him. That's what Jesus said in Mark 12. The most important command of God is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. He had said that before in Deuteronomy 6, but it's important to know. But the only way that we're able to love God is because He loved us first. 1 John again 4 tells us about that. So we love because God loved because God is love. But not only does worshiping God mean to love God, Jesus said also in Mark 12 that the second great command from God is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That also had been said before in Leviticus 19. So to worship God instead of ourselves, our wants, our obedience, our perceived righteousness, any of that stuff, means to love God and love others. But even more, you can't do one without the other. 1 John 4.12 says, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. He says later in 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. We can't do that. We can't love God and hate people. For he, does not, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this command we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You don't really love unless you love God. And you don't really love God if you don't love others. Some of you say, that sounds really offensive. I don't know if I agree with that. That's what the Bible teaches. True love comes from God, the God who is true love. We can't truly love without the God who is love. We can't and won't love others truly without loving God. And when we love God, we will love other people. 
That's why Paul says here in verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, the whole law is a connected whole. It's, it's all a complete unit. Jesus says on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets in Matthew 22. They're so intimately and necessarily connected, you don't have one without the other. So the entire law can be summed up and fulfilled in love. So notice that here in verse 13, the freedom that we have, we have a command. Through love, serve one another. You say, well, if we have freedom, why are we commanded to do something? Because we're not given freedom to utter independence, but freedom to dependent worship on God through love. There's only one independent being in the universe. There's only one being who exists needing nothing from anyone or anything. And it's not you or me. It's only God. And only God can do whatever he pleases. Only God gets to do whatever he wants. Now, there's no fear in that because he always acts in accordance with his nature, which is perfect and righteous and holy. But nobody else can do whatever they want, whatever they please. We all answer to God. So as non-Christians, before we come to Christ, before we've been regenerated, we're under the law, we're held prison, and, and we're slaves to it. When God saves us by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ, he sets us free from the prison and slavery of sin, but we don't become absolutely free like God is. We become restored to God's original purpose for us, worshipers of him. So it's a paradox. We're free to do what we're now capable of doing, to worship him, to obey him because of love. We love him and we love others. Now, men, oftentimes we hear from people in the church, from men in the church, you know, that I can't go to church. It's for women. All they talk about is love all the time. It's, it's sentimental and it's weak and it's sappy, but that's not what this love is. That's not the kind of love that the Bible talks about, the powerful, strong, self-giving love. Through love, we serve one another, he says. The word for serve here is the word for slave, the word for servant. Through love, we're going to make ourselves slaves. (laughs) We're not going to be slaves anymore to the law. We're not going to be slaves anymore to sin. But through love, we're going to serve as if we were servants, one another. And it's a love of action and of energy and of strength and not of weakness or overly emotional. You say, okay, great. So then what's the difference? What's the difference between our imprisoned slavery to the law without Jesus and this service to one another through love? It's a world of difference. See, when we're under the law, we want to know what the boundaries are. We want to know what the boxes to check are. Where are the lines? What's okay for me to do? What's not okay for me to do? Remember, that's how we're trained in this world. That's, that's what we're used to. Do this, don't do that. And we're serving ourselves. But in freedom to love, rather than the lines being drawn for us, we're being pushed from within to serve. Rather than do this and don't do that, love says, do your best to give your best to what others need. As much as you can, we serve others for their good. It's the difference between, let's put it in some little concrete terms, and let's think about everybody's favorite topic, money. (laughs) It's the difference between tithe and offering. The tithe is 10%. Offering says, give as much as you can, and as much as you want to. Love changes what we want to do from ourselves to serving the Lord and others. By the way, tithe isn't even in the New Testament. 10% 
10%. So we don't get to just give 10% and then sit back and say, I've done what I'm supposed to do. That's it. Check the box. You give as much as you can and as much as you want to. And if you don't want to, well, then we've got to search our heart to find out why do I not want to give to the Lord? How about the, the golden rule? You, you've, you know the golden rule. You've heard of the golden rule. The one that we think of that we're familiar with is not universally understood. It's the difference between law and love. The, the so-called golden rule from Hinduism is this, quote, this is the sum of duty. Do not unto others that which would cause pain if done to you, end quote. That's the Hindu golden rule. The Buddhist golden rule is this. Whatever is disagreeable to yourself, do not do unto others. A third century writing from Judaism. Never do to anyone else anything that you would not want someone to do to you. There are plenty of others out there, plenty of other examples. But listen to the difference in Jesus' golden rule in Matthew 7. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Similar language. Our love causes us to act. It's not just sit back and don't do anything to anybody, leave everybody alone, and certainly don't do anything wrong. It's propel yourself forward. Go active in doing things for others. See, that's the difference between tithe and offering, between the golden rules. That's the difference between love and law. Law says, do this. When you've done that, that's it. Your obligation's over. Love says, always go and do. The law says, file your income taxes once per year, right? When you do that, you're good for a year. You have no obligation. I mean, you still have to have taxes deducted from your paychecks, right? But you don't file more often than once a year. Not that you would want to, but you can't do it more often. You can't do it less often. You sit back, you do nothing for an entire year. Then you get it done, and that's it. Love says, file every day not your taxes. (laughs) So when 1 Thessalonians 4.18 tells us, encourage one another, we don't say to our brother once a year, be encouraged. (laughs) I'm done with you for another year. That's all I've met my, I checked the box, right? Love compels you. It propels you forward to encourage your brother in Christ every chance you get, not with a be encouraged, But in new ways and in fresh ways, in meaningful ways, you encourage one another. When the New Testament tells us and commands us to forgive one another, we don't say, well, I had to forgive that person, so, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. We forgive not seven times in a day, 70 times seven times in a day if she comes and repents. See, love doesn't look for the bare minimum boundaries. Love looks to other people, to what they need, and it compels us to meet those needs as we can. Now, we're talking about biblical love here, true love. We're not talking about enabling people, right? We're not talking about doing things for people that should do it themselves, that can do things themselves. And it's sacrificial, but it's not, you know, well, this brother here needs a home. I'm going to move my family onto the street so that my brother can have a home, It's appropriate, and it's what's needed, and it's what we can do. It's not beyond what we can do. Love gives what's best for a brother or sister, what's appropriate. And love compels us to do that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's your neighbor? Remember, that's what the lawyer asked cynically to Jesus in Luke 10. Jesus had been teaching this. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, then, who's my neighbor? He thought he could justify himself. Your neighbor is anybody God places in your path. The word neighbor means the person who's nearby. So it's the person that God brings into your life. 
But what does this mean, love your neighbor as yourself? There's plenty of teaching out there that says, well, to love other people, I've got to love myself. I have to love myself, and then after I love myself a whole bunch, then I can start loving other people. And that's not at all what this means. The command to love yourself as you love, to to love others as you love yourself is based on the fact that we all love ourselves plenty. We love ourselves much more than we should already. To love ourselves, again, this isn't the emotional, sentimental love. This is the preference for our own needs, to meet our needs, to, to do what we want. We do that enough. I mean, if you're hungry, you eat. Even if it's not mealtime, you'll grab a snack. If you're tired, if you need to sleep, you'll go to sleep, even if it's not nighttime. We dress ourselves, we bathe ourselves, we take care of a wound. You know, I mean, if you're in the middle of something and you get hurt, you're going to go take care of that. It doesn't matter if it's convenient timing or not, right? Go do that for others. That's what he says. That's the teaching. As you would do it for yourself, do it for others. You don't even think about it. If a brother is hungry and needs food, you bring him food. If a sister is thirsty and needs a drink, you bring her a drink and needs a visit, you visit. You prefer their needs, You meet them as much as you can. That's love for your neighbor. Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Remember, as we're following Jesus, we're denying ourselves, not fulfilling ourselves, not indulging ourselves. Remember that lovers of self is the first mark of sin among those listed in the last days in 2 Timothy 3. People are going to be lovers of self. They're going to be full of pride and abuse and ungrateful, slanderous. There's a whole lot of others. Rather than lovers of God. And he even says there in those verses, you have these in your notes, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, we we won't go there for the sake of time, but they'll have an appearance of godliness. You know, the teaching sounds so good, you got to love yourself, and then you can love other people. Oh, it makes sense, and I got it. It sounds so spiritual and, and holy, but they're wrong. It's wrong. In Jesus, we are free to love God and love others. We're free to do as much as we can, as much as we want, Our freedom in Christ is guided by love, not legalism, and not licentiousness. Well, so much more that we could say there, but we're going to move on. Put on love. That's our guidance for how to live in freedom. Our freedom in Christ. Love guides our freedom. But number two, verse 15, love guards against fighting. Love guards against fighting. Have you ever noticed that a person who is full of rules, full of law, you can't figure out their rules? Wait, you, so you would watch that movie but not that one, right? <laughs> You've been confused by people. Wait, you'll, you'll go there, but you won't go over here? You'll wear this, but not that? You'll drink this, but not that? I mean, and what does it do? I can't believe you went to that movie. I would never do that. I can't believe you went to that place and ate there. I could never do My rules say don't do that. And what does it do? It breeds division. It brings, it brings fighting. What about the Christian who lives like there's no such thing as sin, no accountability for anything, right? You you try to go talk to that person, let alone confront, just talk with that person. What do they say? You leave me alone. Mind your own business. I've been forgiven by the grace of God. I can do whatever I want. He forgives me. And he'll fight tooth and nail to defend his freedom to do whatever he wants. See, neither one of these positions of law or license neither one of these are grounded in love, neither one of them brings glory to God, and neither one of them produces or maintains the unity of believers. Can you imagine the disagreement, the division it would cause? Sure you can. (laughs) Just look a few years ago at the so-called worship wars. 
right? It was a legalist that said hymns only with only an organ or a piano, right? It was the licentious people that said, we can sing whatever we want, even secular songs. We'll sing whatever we want because God takes anything from us. There were the legalists, there were the licentious, but then there were the lovers of God who said, it doesn't matter if it's old or new, if it honors God, we'll sing it. If it does what he's told us to do in song. The Galatians were fighting over this. Both legalism and licentiousness lead to fighting. They both lead to severe conflict. You can even destroy a local church with either one of these. The words that he uses here, the biting and devouring, they're words for a pack of animals devouring each other, just eating each other up. You know, when we start doing this within the body of Christ, we're attacking his body. We're attacking one another. And it's like you, you took a look at your leg and said, I can't believe you did that. And you start beating your own leg, biting it, and kicking it with the other leg. Like, what are you doing? That, was, that doesn't make any sense, does it? He says, watch out. Look what you're doing. When you fall into either legalism or licentiousness, you're dividing into factions. You're going to consume one another. And that would be the exact opposite of the very summary of both the law and the gospel, which is love. So it's not law or license, it's love. Our application then, we could really complicate this and we could really just make it super spiritual sounding, but our application, you just have the one blank and you've probably already filled it in, is love. Put off the law. Put off license. Put on love. And we could list all the ways that we are to love one another. They're all here for us in the New Testament. We could list all the ways that we can love the Lord. They're listed for us in the New Testament. One writer said it would be easier to count the drops of rain falling than it would be to count the ways we should be able to love one another and love the Lord. Father, we praise you, God, that you are love. God, thank you for your strong love. Father, thank you that you have demonstrated your love, that when we were still sinners, for the people around us who are still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, what love, what love you have given to us, God, in your holiness, in our sinfulness, you overcame. Lord, you conquered our sin. You conquered even us, Lord, to bring us to you. Father, we praise your great name. We lift up the the awesome name of Jesus. God, we praise you for him. We thank you for his perfect life, for his death that would have been perfect, yet he took our sin. He took our place under your wrath, God, on the cross. He cried out, it is finished, and he died. Father, he stayed dead for three days, but then he rose again. Father, God, this truth, this gospel is not something for us, Lord, to, to think about once a week or to rehash for people that don't know it. It's for us to rehash and to rethink and to relive every moment. God, I pray that you would bring to our minds the love of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, Lord, that, that he did not come to give us an example without giving us redemption, without setting us free. Father, we praise you for that. Lord, give us a greater love for Jesus. Lord, help us to have a greater love for the people around us. Lord, help us to love ourselves less, others more in Christ most, that we would serve, that we would worship, that you would be glorified in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.